every now and then we'll read a work for the show that leaves me a little baffled, and sometimes we're only really able to put together the pieces after reading it a little bit more and reading a little bit more about the author and their life. And such is one case here, though I have to admit that after reading more about the author himself, I'm perhaps left with a little more questions than when I began. So, Charles Howard Hinton was born in 1853, maybe. I don't have an exact date, and some sources aren't 100% sure on the year. But his father was a James Hinton, a prominent ear surgeon, with a great deal of medical papers to his name, the most well-known being The Mystery of Pain. James was also a fan of polyamory, once remarking to his wife, quote, Christ was the savior of men, but I am the savior of women, and I don't envy him a bit. And this kind of attitude would bleed down into his son. Charles's sister, Adeline, was also rather famous in her own right, becoming a costumer and dress designer who made Constant Lloyd's wedding dress when she married Oscar Wilde, as well as numerous costumes for the theater, particularly Shakespeare productions. Charles, however, took an early interest in learning and earned his B.A. from Balliol College, Oxford, in 1877. And in 1880, he began teaching at the Uppingham School. And in the same year, he married Mary Ellen Boole, who is the daughter of George Boole, most known for developing the system of Boolean logic and algebra, one of the foundational mathematical theories behind computing and information technologies that still have very wide and important implications today. Oh, yeah. However, it doesn't seem like the marriage was a happy one, as Hinton married another woman, Maud Florence, in secret without getting divorced first. Mary Ellen Boole was rightfully infuriated when she found out in 1886, and basically dragged him to both the headmaster at Uppingham College where he was teaching, and then to the police department with this information. Bigamy was illegal in the United Kingdom at the time, so he was arrested and convicted on these charges, and the scandal was so big that it prevented him from doing any work in Britain, so him and Maud basically had to flee. They initially settled on Japan, and for some reason, his sister-in-law, Alicia Boole-Stott, was so impressed by his work that she helped him publish his book, A New Era of Thought, considered by some to be his masterwork while in exile. And you'd think the sister of the woman he was cheating on would be less sympathetic towards him, but who knows, maybe she was also a part of this bizarre love tesseract. Alicia was quite the mathematician herself, and was quite taken by Hinton showing her various geometrical models and diagrams, and had a talent for visualizing things in the fourth dimension. And like Hinton, most of her work was dedicated to four-dimensional geometry. And A New Era of Thought was Hinton's treatise on the subject. So, given some other situational details in Hinton's life, I have to wonder if there was something else going on between the two of them, aside from love of four-dimensional mathematics. An unanswerable question, maybe, but in exile, Hinton is slowly able to rebuild his reputation. And Hinton and his family moved to the United States in 1893, where he receives a position at the College of New Jersey teaching mathematics in particular elementary solid geometry, and menstruation, trigonometry, and conic sections. It should be mentioned that this College of New Jersey is not the current College of New Jersey that holds this name, but 
rather the college that would change its name to Princeton University in 1896. So due to this odd naming issue and the fact that everybody calls it Princeton nowadays because that's its current name, we'll just call it Princeton, though through most of his tenure there, it was not called that. But here he developed a practice machine for baseball players, a mechanical pitcher. Oh yeah, I've seen those. (laughs) Or as Mark Blacklock, writing for the BBC Science Focus, describes it, quote, a gunpowder-fueled cannon which fired baseballs at batters. While initially creating some buzz, this pitching machine was not popular with the baseball players as it had a tendency to shoot balls out erratically, often causing injury. In 1897, he was fired from Princeton, though I can't find out exactly why. Maybe he slept with the wrong woman, maybe his pitching machine injured the wrong person. Maybe his personality and teaching approach just wasn't Princeton material, but he was rather embittered by the American education experience, writing in 1902, quote, In America, a new phenomenon has arisen. The businessman in control of the halls of learning. The college president runs his university as if it were a great factory. He makes a number of provisional appointments instructors. The instructors know that during term time, they must work to the full extent of their energy and instruction and occupy their vacations in prosecuting their subject if they are to retain their positions. Hinton was not exactly the serious educator that this quote here might suggest, as he was quite fond of playing practical jokes on his students and had the nickname of Bull. One of these practical jokes was written about in the New York Sun in 1907, describing a Princeton event where he read from a newspaper, purportedly describing a baseball game in 1950, trying to pass it off as a legitimate newspaper count of the future. So it could be also for this reason that he was fired, but shortly after he was discharged, he received an appointment at the University of Minnesota as an assistant professor, and in 1900 took a position at the Naval Observatory in Washington, D.C., and during this time publishes The Fourth Dimension in 1904. During the annual banquet of Washington, D.C. Society of Philanthropic Inquiry on April 3, 1907, He led the evening by giving an annual toast to female philosophers, and before leaving the event, has a cerebral hemorrhage and drops dead on the spot. So it makes you wonder what the toast was. Was it insincerity? Was it some sort of coarse joke? And furthermore, I had a question of what is the Society of Philanthropic Inquiry? Googling the organization's name only brings up results that directly reference this specific incident. And if this isn't a typo from the original source, then for the organization to be so insignificant that it has yet to make its way on anything searchable by Google should perhaps say something about who was in the audience and who was not in the audience. Huh. Yeah, that's very curious. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm sure one could look into DC businesses and academic archives to find out more about this issue, but that one will almost certainly not be us. Yes. Any Hinton biographers who might be listening to Chrononauts, yeah. Send us an email about right. this. <laughs> yes. That, that's an issue for the Hinton scholars out there. Right. Yeah. The numerous ones. Right, I'm sure. The four-dimensional yes. ones. So, <laughs> As noted, Hinton was heavily involved in mathematics, and the great deal of his publications are nonfiction mathematical works. In particular, he was very much interested in extra dimensions, the fourth dimension in particular, and made a great deal of advancements in fourth-dimensional geometry. Among other things, he coined the term tesseract. His fiction is much less in number. In 1884, he published a two-volume collection of works entitled Scientific Romances, 
This is a bit of a misnomer, as a great deal of them are nonfiction mathematical text. But volume one of Scientific Romances has a story called The Persian King that's like kind of sort of fiction in the sense that it uses a historical fiction framing device to enter into a mathematical philosophizing dialogue. But volume two of Scientific Romances, in addition to two nonfiction mathematical works, contains two works that are unambiguously fiction. Namely, the novella Stella, which Rudy Rucker describes as, quote, a first-person description of the narrator's love affair with a girl who has been made invisible by her guardian. That is, he has provided her with an elixir, which she drinks to make her index of refraction equal to that of air. We've been planning a future invisibility episode for a while, and this one was certainly not on our radar, and I don't know if we're going to be able to squeeze that one in, as that episode seems quite full already, but it would certainly make a nice precursor to some of the other stories we've selected for that episode, which you might be able to guess what one or two of them are. So, so uh, sorry to, to cut you off or interrupt you here, but I just thought it was significant that you mentioned the name Rudy Rucker when you were describing that, because we mentioned him before on the podcast as a science fiction writer. He's also a mathematician. One of the books that he wrote is one that we cited for our Flatland episode, which was a sequel to Flatland. Right, and uh, it seems like it seems like he has some pretty cool antecedents in the fiction realm. I think he wrote some Hollow Earth kind of stuff as well. But he's coming at this material from a very modern, late twentieth century physics kind of perspective, like an actual learned scientific perspective as well as right. like telling crazy adventure stories and stuff. Yeah, he so. wrote that in an introduction to his works that's been anthologized since. But Hinton also wrote a sequel to Flatland. Oh. In 1907, he wrote an episode of Flatland or How a Plain Folk Discovered the Third Dimension. Okay, I think I think I might have mentioned that too without realizing who it was or that we would be coming yeah. to him later. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that one does not appear in Scientific Romances Volume 2. That one was published in 1907, the year of his death. But also appearing in Scientific Romances Volume 2 is our story for tonight in Unfinished Communication. Archive.org has a scan of Scientific Romances Volume 2 posted, but there is also a version posted online at iBiblio, but they abridge out about half of the story, leaving only the sci-fi adjacent parts, which is really only the final chapter. And I could kind of see why this was done, but at the same time, it really cuts out a huge amount of context for the final act. I guess so, yeah. The final act in particular, I think, makes this one difficult to talk about in non-spoiler terms as like 80% of the story or so has no science fiction elements at all, but rather sees the slow unfolding of a mystery. And we'll have a few of these coming up too. So if you really don't want to be spoiled on this one, try to avoid reading anything about this online as no doubt any mentions of it in the science fiction related context will have pretty much discussion of the end and and what the end is and, and how it all comes together. So It makes it a little frustrating for the reader, too. I think what we can say in a non-spoiler sense is that there are a lot of pieces that seemingly come from out of nowhere. And while they do coalesce in the end, I was left for a great deal of this one kind of wondering where he's going with it and why. And the resolution wasn't entirely satisfactory to me, but it did have a lot of really cool ideas that I think ultimately make it worth reading. But it is a more somewhat frustrating and challenging read. The pro style is very atmospheric and evocative in a lot of points, and there's a fair amount of humor interspersed throughout, but 
some of the yeah. passages can be quite dense and obtuse, and especially in the last chapter, but I think it's overall rewarding, if a bit and obviously flawed. I definitely was very puzzled throughout. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I enjoyed a lot of it. I, I thought especially, actually, the early chapters were interesting and in setting up certain interactions that he did in a very clever way. And yeah, the humor really came out. Yeah. And I enjoyed that. And there was there was one part, actually, and when you're doing the synopsis, maybe I'll point it out, but that was kind of my favorite part that just really made me feel like, yeah, that this is good, actually. And then it kind of lost me a little bit, but like I I think I understand what he was getting at. And I, I again, I think that this one might be a little backloaded just because it's difficult to talk about this without really saying what happens in the, you know, what it all comes to, I guess. Right. So just a warning for the spoiler discussion, I will be bringing the end and what it means in much earlier than we find out in the story. So the spoiler section will be a true spoiler section, but yes. And I mean, it always is with us, but like we say, okay, turn off now if you haven't read this and you want to. And we're, I guess the whole object of this section now is to tell you people actually whether you would like to read this or or help you decide i should say yeah whether you would like to read this and i guess if we can answer that question now this was really odd and i think i liked it i'm not sure (laughs) that i agree with hinton sometimes and some of the things that he seems to be suggesting i guess but i don't know it's um yeah it's okay. Like, you know, I <laughs> I thought it was really interesting work and definitely felt a bit outsider-ish. Like, mm-hmm. this guy's really coming from some unknown places as far as I'm concerned. But I, I think that he's trying to deliver a message of hope ultimately, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. And we'll get to that. Yeah. I too was very puzzled reading this and I will admit that there were a couple of times where I did sort of drift when reading parts of it because it is like you said very dense and I did find myself having to reread a few bits but I do agree that I think overall I think it is worth reading and I, I think that what Hinton is trying to say is interesting and I, I think that there is something that can be said about it. Oh, there's a lot that can be said about that. Yeah. What I thought was kind of interesting and that you wouldn't expect from what I've just described of Hinton's life and his background is the density doesn't really come from him throwing a bunch of mathematical theory or equations at you or... I wouldn't have even known that he was a mathematician. Yeah, exactly. It's this very obtuse, almost modernist prose style. Yeah. Particularly the the last chapter kind of reminded me of one of the segments from Ulysses where it just kind of jumps all around town. But yeah, it, yeah. I had to reread the entire final 75% or so. I mean, the, the first chapter is relatively straightforward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the second and third are more, I guess, not as wild as the last chapter as far as like jumping around time and space. But the second and third chapters, you like don't really get why they're there like where he's going with this and Mm -hmm. like sometimes he does get bogged down in these like anecdotes that just don't seem to have a point and it's like wait what okay and yeah i mean rereading it a second time it did help a bit with kind of tying all the themes together but 
the last time I did that on the show was with Henry James's in the cage. Yeah. Which again, similarly frustrated me in its obtuse pro style. And I wasn't entirely satisfied with the resolution there, but I thought it was ultimately worth reading. And I think mm-hmm. I would say the same for, for this one as well. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the time when we do this sort of genre of work, and this is not to denigrate it, but there is a certain formula that it follows a lot of the time, and it could be one of several formulas, but you kind of know roughly what kind of story you're reading. And with this, I had no idea, yeah. uh, <laughs> no clue what any of it was adding up to. Yeah. I was just like, I'm just going to go with it. I can see that he thinks this is of great importance. So, <laughs> yeah. You really feel like you're just like dropped in the middle of something, and you're, you're not really sure... <laughs> I mean, you literally are. Yeah, you are. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Literally and metaphorically. Right, exactly. Yeah. So unless you guys have any objections, let's get into where we're dropped. Yeah, I think that's the best thing to do. The best thing to do is just to tackle this head on. The narrator in our story is traversing old New York somewhere, a village maybe, I don't know, his streets are small and windy, but suddenly his eye is caught by this strange sign, Mr. Smith, Unlearner. The world is a cold place, especially with sciences like biology and astronomy that reduce the human-centric view. Yeah, this is all pretty funny. He keeps thinking about, at first he's like, oh, what a ridiculous thing. But then he's like, oh, here, but here's all the things that I would like to unlearn, given the chance. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Ignorance is bliss. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So wouldn't it be better if we just shrugged off all this knowledge humanity has acquired for the last 3,000 years and kind of somehow go back to nature or whatever? So, intrigued by this thought, he approaches and he looks for this Mr. Smith. The woman who answers the door tells him he's gone out. It seems that his trunk is still there, though, and this leaves him puzzled about the sign and his potentially self-deprecating humor to the servants. He does find out where he went off to, some fishing village nearby, and by steamer, he goes with two other passengers to a boarding house. He meets up with Smith on the beach, and there's some really nice ocean imagery here, and they have a rather obtuse and awkward conversation with a fair amount of humor interspersed. And Smith is the only unlearner out there who lays claim to the proficiency and ability of nothing. Smith asks him if he really wants to unlearn, and wants to make sure that he's really sure he wants all of this, as unlearning is potentially reckless. And... As I alluded to earlier, we are not told this at this point in the story, but this is the spoiler section of the summary, and we get this at the end. Since we've read this before, we do have the benefit of knowing how the unlearning process unfolds, so we'll just relate it here. It's death. He then relates the story of someone who came to him once, a man who murdered another man over a debt, but he gets away with it. And through his guilty conscience, he has to tell someone. He first tells a deacon, who tells him the very deacon advice of telling him to keep quiet. And 
just <laughs> let it roll. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then he's not really satisfied with his answer, so he tells a woman. And uh, this is one part that I just didn't understand. So he wants the woman to tell everybody about herself and to tell everybody about her. I, I don't know, but... This was one of the parts I sort of drifted a bit on. Yeah, I, I don't really know what he was getting at with this he woman. He seemed to or... be saying that because she she will be 100% open about everything, about everything to do with herself, that'll make people by proxy feel more confident about him and that he's actually an alright person. Yeah. It's very strange. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> I thought it was quite strange. But she doesn't want yeah. any part of this, so he turns himself in and gets executed. This puts her in a flood of emotion, so... I don't know. Perhaps the murder by way of his execution goes through this unlearning process, which we'll see more of in a little bit. And while Smith, the unlearner, is relating this tale to the narrator, an artist named Eustace Thompson, who was one of the people who traveled over with the narrator on the steamer, approaches them and addresses Smith, and so does Clement, who was the other passenger on board the steamer. And they both want to learn about unlearning. The narrator deduces they should depart from life's duties and form some spiritual network with one another, this union being a vehicle for the spirit of man to work through as through their own bodies, or something of the sort. The artist gives his story. He has fallen in love with painting at an early age, but has no real talent and always feels mediocre. A year ago, he was commissioned for a portrait of a General Walker's sister as the head of a saint. And he starts talking to her about his ideal woman. And the lady says she knows just the woman, her niece. She's just like him and loves nature, doesn't care one bit for society. And this lady, Matilda, sets up a meeting between the two of them, saying that she was once jilted before. The niece, the ideal woman of the artist, is to give a sign. She's to drop her handkerchief, but at the actual meeting... He is too enraptured by her beauty and doesn't really recognize the sign until it's too late. He's too lost in thought, he's too feeling too unworthy, and he just totally misses the signal and she goes away. And Matilda is quite upset by all this and leaves him without the painting. So that's the artist's story. And Clement also had a desire, not for this sort of physical beauty, but for the study of material things. And he enters the church as the logical entry point for study. However, he comes around to the practical religion of America that a belief that the will of the people is divine, with the added revelation of the dollar. And he gets rejected by a woman he's corresponding with who was working as a missionary. And she thinks that, quote, he needs more converting than the heathen. And so he wants to unlearn his rationalistic convictions. Clement looks at the narrator as to get him to tell him his story, but he doesn't act and do that. And we'll get the narrator's story in a couple chapters, but unhappy relationships seems to be more or less the theme of these three visitors. So be prepared for more of that from the narrator when it comes. However, here the narrator gets into some back and forth with Clement regarding what he should have done with the girl on the nature of human communication and relationship, to which they rather disagree. Eustace, the artist, asks Smith if he will do anything for him, and Smith responds in his obtuse way, basically refusing his services to the three of them. The narrator gets frustrated and disinterested and leaves. 
says he'll be there for a few days and maybe they'll see each other again. And he asks Clement to send his things upon his return. The unlearner telling them they'll meet again soon. The narrator becomes quite sullen on the beach, and he wonders if anybody would care if he just disappeared, and he becomes jealous of the sands, being slowly washed away by the tide each day. This may or may not be some foreshadowing. Maybe we'll find out in a few minutes. Also a lot of oxed. <laughs> a lot of uh, yeah. oxiness there. Yeah. Suddenly he hears a call of a girl trying to warn him of danger, but... Eventually, he makes his way to a village, inquiring about lodging in a particularly large house. Indeed, he does rent a room for a few days from Jack Hudson, the owner. And here he meets the girl from the beach again. And Jack reemphasizes the nature of tides and quicksands. The next day was not productive in finding more clues about the unlearner, or really from his words, or anything, really. And in the evening, he returns to the girl, Natty who is teaching some kids how to read and write. She isn't the school teacher, but is helping them anyways. And one of the kids reads him his story. And his story is about a farmer who helps out a series of wolves, which are at first meant to sound like they're threatening, but they're all hurt in some way and need some help from the boy. However, for whatever reason, he refuses to help the last one and decides to become a house carpenter instead. The moral rather confuses the narrator, and after some discussion of the ending, Jack comes in and the children go out. Jack is gruff, nothing like his daughter, and instead the narrator and Natty talk about stories. She specifically asks him for Heenan's art of self-defense and maybe something on boats. It's a rather strange request, the narrator thinks, but she exits the room silently. Jack falls asleep and the narrator returns to his room. The next day, hiring a boat, but there appears to be nothing but the ocean and seagulls out there. Natty appears to be a listener, so the narrator just talks at Jack on a variety of subjects which make him fall asleep. But Natty becomes more interested, so he gives her a crash course on literature history, and in particular relates Don Quixote to her. He then goes into a tale of what Cervantes should have wrote, a legitimately happy day for him. Yeah, this is a really incredible conversation they well, monologue, really, <laughs> that he gives. Yeah. Like, the way he tells it, he goes into everything possible. It's like... During however many hours it is, he completely changes her life. Yeah. And completely unburdens himself of the essence of classical education. Right. Yeah. Just gives <laughs> her a master's degree worth of the classics up to the medieval period in yeah. a couple nights. I mean, Homer, the ancients, you know, I'm, I'm sure some King Arthur stuff gets in there too. Yeah. Chaucer. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. A lot of fascinating stuff. So who wouldn't be enthralled at this? demonstration of the greats but his opinion on Cervantes is what he really goes into so he really wants to relate this tale of Don Quixote just having a legitimately happy day not one where he's suffering from any delusion giving the tale kind of a happy end so when Don Quixote is coming to a hostel he thinks he's going to get ambushed by bandits there so he just keeps on walking down the path and it doesn't really go anywhere and it just tires out his horse Rocinante, who he leaves behind. Sancho Panza isn't with him for this. It's just Don Quixote traveling by himself. And through this thicket, he makes his way to a castle, which has a drawbridge and a smaller bridge hanging. So he's able to scale the walls and gain access. And inside, he finds everyone asleep. He assumes that everybody is enchanted, so he cuts the bridge so the enchanter can't escape the castle. 
and he informs the Lady of the Castle of this, who is very delighted to hear this news. The knight from La Mancha sees a rat peering into the men's faces, so he stabs it, killing the traitor from within as the caitiff crowd tries to scale the walls. In the morning, he walks away, having saved the day. He returns to Rocinante and leaves. Natty, or Natalia, which is her real name, is also in a state of enchantment, and she tells him she was an orphan taken in by Jack after washing up on shore after a stormy wreck. One day, he hears Natalia struggling with a group of boys, but she hits one of them, causing them to flee, except for one who stumbles in the narrator, and he says that Natalia is a thief and everybody is afraid of her. The fire and contempt in Natalia for the villagers really strikes the narrator. He tells her that getting into fights like this is dangerous, and she says it's nothing of the sort. That Jack taught her how to fight and to deal with these types, and this must be where the Heenan's art of self-defense request comes from. And the narrator then changes the subject to get onto the unlearner, and she asks her what the stranger was like. She says she can't say that he was there a year ago, but was there again when the narrator first arrived, telling her that he would take her to her own mother and father. The weather becomes nicer, and he asks her if she would ever consider leaving the island, and says that she would go, and he is happy to take her along, and he tells her a story of a civilization that grew advanced under their own technologies and had lost touch with nature, and in a war with natives, one captive chief leads the magistrate out of town and shows him the beauty of the world, which changes his view on life, and indeed, the entire society itself. A theme which will come up again briefly later on. So, such a change Natalia brought on to the narrator himself. And in the morning, she bids goodbye, and the two set off for the steamer. And, like, Natalia just goes off by herself? I thought the narrator was... Yeah, I thought so too at first, but I guess that would be... I guess, like, it's kind of funny, because I would have seen, like, people having something to say about them going together, but at the same time, it's like, oh, but you're setting her off by herself, and, and, like... And later we find out that I they didn't really go well, I think. And yeah. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, you just kind of sent her to fed for herself. But at the same time, it's like, <laughs> it's almost like we're, we're seen to think that that's more noble somehow. Like, like just, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's strange. His, his, he's got some weird, like his weird, I don't know, like this weird thing about the girl and how she can't you know she shouldn't have to fight and all this stuff but at the same time it's like it's hard to tell if the narrator of the story just has certain prejudices or whether he's trying to say something about people's roles in society or what like it's 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 weird i couldn't i couldn't really tell honestly yeah so natalia's character will come up again kind of briefly later on as the physical embodiment of nature in a rather obtuse episode. And I, I think what he's getting yeah. at here is we find out the reason he doesn't go off with her at this time is he's already married. And her beauty, her personality, whatever it is about Natalia, maybe she's just willing to listen to him blather about classic literature for six hours on end. <laughs> Who else would do that, right? Just awakens something <laughs> in him like natural beauty and it's better than the situation he's at. But we'll... We'll get there in a minute. (laughs) So right now he sends her up on her own and he spends more time poking around her hometown and even wants to learn more about her. So you you 
figure he'd just like ask her while she's around, but uh, whatever. Not heeding her most important advice, he gets stuck in a quicksand pit on a beach and can't get out. The waves wash over him and pull him about, and his strength rapidly fails, and he knows now what the unlearner meant, that he will be drowned. He sees the face of a woman named Gretchen, who we will later learn is his wife, but at this point in the story, we have no idea who she is. And this is also the first time on the podcast we get a character named after one of our co-hosts, so... Yeah. <laughs> so, apologies, well, Gretchen. We did, have, we did have a Nathaniel in the Sandman, don't forget him. Yeah, but that's that's not my actual name, so... <laughs> it, it, it doesn't really count. Um, <laughs> yeah. Apologies, Gretchen, the character is not the greatest in the world. <laughs> <laughs> it's something. It There's is not something. many characters with that name, No, so. yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose some of us are reasonably safe from that. Having namesakes, or too many of them anyway. <laughs> yeah, but through this experience of drowning, his mind flashes throughout various scenes in his life. Yeah, it's time for another journey. Yes, a very strange sorts. journey. So yeah. because of how abrupt a lot of these transitions are with the characters, with the people and events that are literally never mentioned in the story up to this point, I had a really hard time following this part upon first read. Yeah. And I initially thought he might not only be shifting through time, but also shifting to different people. This is not the case, as it's made clear later on, that these are indeed all of his memories. But yeah. yeah. At the time, I thought the same thing. Yeah. He throws a lot at you. And it's really, again, very abrupt and like modernist in the way he does it. Like stylistically, it really reminded me of Joyce in some ways, again, with a fraction of the talent. Though he does pull off some interesting scenes here. Some of them are a bit heavy-handed, and it gets really heavy-handed towards the end. Oh, yeah. Which we'll see in a bit. So we start off with a brief one of him as a child and his father in a carriage, rather humorously and innocently talking about perspective motion of horses. Later on, after his father is dead, he is now in the woods with somebody named Scotchy, who is from Scotland. So the narrator asks Scotchy to tell him a story as he can't sleep. So he does about somebody named Anstruther. I don't know how to pronounce that name, so I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. But this person is ruined in a bank failure. And he started to work all his way back up at a foundry. And one day receives a piece of iron in the mail sent to him by a woman that he awkwardly met the previous day which for some reason returns to him in his dreams, and the dreams end with him using a lathe on it, opening up a hollow interior with a bunch of gems inside. He doesn't do anything in real life about this information, and the story just, like, ends here with him never seeing her again. This is one of the anecdotes that I'm wondering, like, why? Well, it's just funny because he asks him, he's like, so did he open up the thing? Like, yeah. he, And he says, no, no, because he knew that there was nothing in it. Yeah. <laughs> There's this thing Gogol does a couple times in Dead Souls where he goes on like these really long, boring anecdotes about things that have no related points to the plot, but and at the end well, it's somebody... almost like he's trying to he's trying to say something with all these parables, but it's a little bit unclear to me what his objective is. Yeah. Like it's kind of like the story of the boy the boy who got sick of helping wolves and yeah. eventually decided, yeah, I'm not going to bother anymore. And it's like, what is that? What are you trying to say? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Even the, the character in the story. is. I, I suppose the point is that there is no point to it. 
Yeah, and I mean, Google is really good about laying down the comic lines at the very end of this actually has no point, and it was just a diversion <laughs> to waste your time, and it never really nails it that quite on the head. Um, so I'm not sure if that's exactly what he had in mind. But the next scene is him talking with his sister, Nellie, about getting out of being a shoemaker. And then it later jumps down to him in New Jersey trying to sell things door to door. And by this time, Nellie is married and he's off attending university at Cambridge in a later time jump. And it now cuts to a scene in Central Park where we have St. Paul and St. Simon just lounging about having a conversation. Just hanging out in Central Park. Yeah, why not? <laughs> why not, right? Yeah. They're, they're in part of the higher space dimension, so... All the people wandering by can't see them. So yeah, yeah, and it's still a very nice park in 2022. So I'm sure in 1884 or whenever this was, that was even nicer place. Yeah, we don't have all the skyscrapers bounding it off on the east and the west sides. Probably real rural feel in old New York. So mm-hmm. Saint Paul and Saint Simon just sitting around enjoying the breeze, and a messenger comes along and says, "There's somebody to be judged." St. Peter doesn't know anything about her, as she wasn't processed by him, but they admit her to their presence. And it is a penitent woman who is walking as a humbled queen might, and she begs forgiveness for stealing the bundle that she's carrying. And when the two saints ask what the bundle is, she opens it up, and inside was nothing, and yet everything. In the abstract, poetic, and philosophical sense, that is, and there's a good three-quarter page description of what this entails, so we'll just quote a bit of the first bit so you get an idea of where it goes. Here were the grace of the dappled limbs of the fawn, the lines of the strength of the tiger, the wonderful green of the forest, the all-burying forest in their wonderful maze, and so on and so on and so on. But all these things are not hers. She has stolen them and then begs to be judged. St. Simon hides his face, but Paul remains alert on how to deal with the situation. And she says that it was hers at the time of creation to keep the atoms moving. And out of these men generated garments, sound and color. The men praised her, calling her nature, projecting what they see onto her. And St. Paul is silent, and a divine presence above all appears. And God says, Child, know that because thou carest for man's praise, there is that in thee wherewith thou canst be to him all he longs for. Leave here these feigned garments, and the voice he has lent thee, Go thy way be to him as thy awakening heart tells thee. So nature goes, and she's herself again, and no more was there deception in the joys men clasp, no more did the glamour hide an emptiness within, no rose fell crumbling, and withered the moment man pressed it to his lips. No longer in all his joys did man perpetually grasp his own imaginations and beyond them, emptiness. No longer did he chase the mask of pleasure for its own sake, seeking but himself. There's some reflection on how things were before this divine intervention and how things are now and how much better it is now that nature is just being herself rather than to try to please man. And it's not really spelled out too much here, but the tone was kind of similar to those like angry male gazy rants. Those people will sometimes go online when they rant about like how women shouldn't wear makeup or such nonsense. And I'm not exactly sure if that's what he was going for here. Maybe he was, or if it's just how it Yeah, I really off. don't know. I was I was getting mixed messages from all that, especially like when he would say things like like at one hand, it's kind of like, yeah, she seems like the like the way he's describing 
Natalia, you know, it's like, it's kind of, oh, I can appreciate that. Like, you know, it's, she's doing what she has to do and she's strong and that's great. But on the other hand, he's like, oh, but she shouldn't have to do any of those things. And by the way, I, I don't know. It was, it was a bit perplexing as much of this work was, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. I mean, nature yeah. is gendered opposite man. And it, it seems pretty clear that Natalia is that personification right you know she doesn't care about society you know she's just better off doing her own thing or, or whatever even though it's kind of hinton's own idea of what that thing should be and probably not an actual person's idea you like know not in society yeah not, not uh, yeah right and i mean later on he says what's her name the dancing girl he says that she is just following her parents wishes and right. i was kind of oh. thinking really like or maybe that's just what she wants to do. I yeah, right. I was yeah. confused. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah. Yeah. Nature and man. <laughs> Profound. Uh, <laughs> so here, I think there was supposed to be a break in the text because it, like, rapidly shifts to another scene. Or so it seems, I guess. But yeah. again, it kind of runs into the same paragraph, and it's not really clear here. But we now have the narrator with an intimate friend who is a dog that he's conversing with about each other's place in the world. And the dog is fully capable of speaking, or maybe he's just speaking in his metaphorical his way of grunts, whines, wags, and bows. I... If my dog can really give me advice, this is what he would say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the narrator ultimately orders the dog to follow, and he sees a great deal of other men and dogs out in the city, and he comes a across a wretched man in rags arguing with his dog and the narrator remarks to his dog i calm-lipped self-controlled can let all pass wherein you live i belong to that band which strive for objects you know nothing of and the dog then responds you know you have no joy in life save for me and all you think or do is to give me pleasure and the narrator responds that he'll never abandon him and would not want to do so so then the scene cuts again rapidly to some Viennese aristocrats, of which the narrator is one, and there's been some drama concerning the fate of Gretchen in the music profession. Her father thinks that she's an investment and doesn't want the narrator's help in either giving her money to either allow her to marry or to choose another profession. So she ends up marrying the narrator for his money, apparently manipulated by his friend Paget, and they have some awkward conversations in both German and English, and she somehow had the idea that if she forgoes the man she loves and marries the man with a bank account, she'll have all the luxuries she wants. Yeah, and I guess be able to have the man she loves on the side, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, right. Seems... Yeah, I, yeah, this, yeah. We'll, we'll get to this, but this scene, this whole relationship construction is, is uh, I, I thought this was not one of the story's stronger points. <laughs> so the scene cuts again, and we're now back with Scotchy and his wife, Adela. And the two are sitting with a narrator and are about to break out the sherry, because what else do English people do but drink sherry? <laughs> yeah. So Adela says, if anything gets desperate, she calls him in and is complaining about having to, like, punish her kids and stuff. And the narrator walks away from the scene, musing on his own unhappy marriage. And it's here in the story where he first sees the unlearner sign. He sees Natalia listening to him. The smoke vanishes and he's back in the water, drowning. However, in each of these scenes that we have just replayed, he's an active participant, living them as he did the first time. But he just keeps reliving the same course over and over again, and there's this oppressive bond over him, and he can't break the chains of repetition. But 
Still, watching closer, as the events replay more and more and more, they become slightly different in very, very subtle ways each time, to the point where they begin to diverge from the established timeline altogether. One of these changes, he doesn't set Natalia off on her own, but instead goes with her. And they lead a life together and die together. And this is the universe-spanning ideal, like Dante and Beatrice before him. Gretchen likewise becomes more able to refuse her parents' wishes, not strategically marrying, and the unlearner himself in these reiterations becomes more and more distant in the background until he's not there at all. And I'm not really sure if it's spelled out what the fates of the artist and the curate are, but presumably they slowly and infinitely move towards the ideal in their field, or maybe the women that rejected them or they weren't able to develop relationships with. And yeah, that's the end of this one. And again, very mixed on this. Gretchen, the character, was clearly a stand-in for his first wife and Natalia for Maud. And it seems like the number one thing on his mind during this period was getting out of his marriage in real life. And I just really did not like this element of it. He constructs this like really incredibly strange post-mortem time travel scenario that has a lot of shades of works to come, like Philip K. Dick's Something for Us Tempanads. And he uses it to like, I don't know, ditch your wife and sleep with some younger woman. It's just like, come yeah, on, man. Get, like, yeah. so, I, so I think, I mean, I mean, in a way, it kind of reminds me of something that, that I've, I've kind of thought about before. And it's even though, yeah, like I, I don't believe in an afterlife, but maybe a possibility for an afterlife is that you are able to see into all the potential parallel possibilities that might occur. Right. And you're kind of all that stuff becomes open to you. And in that sense, there was a certain beauty in this, but yeah, I agree. I mean, it was, it was sort of, in the end, it seemed maybe a little bit petty or something. Yeah, the, petty is the exact word I, I wrote down in my notes. Like, it's such a <laughs> big and otherworldly concept to waste it complaining about your wife and how you want to sleep with a maid or whatever. It's like, uh, really? Yeah. Well, it was honest, maybe. We can give <laughs> yeah, it that. I, I guess so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I honestly, I don't know if I can unreservedly recommend this, but... Like I said before we started the synopsis, it is really interesting. And yeah, I mean, ultimately, it is kind of an honest thing to admit, I guess, that this, yeah, this is what you would do. You know, this is this is how you feel about things. And I don't know. It's it was something. It was something. <laughs> it was worth a read, I think. I know that when we were talking about like Arctic with Anna Adolf and everything that I, I have enjoyed works that are more personal. I... I don't know if I can say it about this one. <laughs> like, I, I don't think that it... I feel like... Because I, I didn't know about the background of Hinton before we got into it during this. And I, yeah, I, I liked it better not knowing exactly what he meant by it. Yeah, and I think that is pretty much what he means. And you think about it more and more. Like, when I was reading the plot summary, I, I just, you know, again, going through the story another time. You make these connections of like, yeah, it really all just comes down to that. Doesn't it? <laughs> An entire modernist work about how you hate your wife. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be it wouldn't be the first or the last time that somebody did that. Though. No, but I mean, it, in other ways, it really does predate a lot of other things like the modernist style and the plot structuring, as well as the 
science fiction adjacent concepts like time travel. I mean, we could have easily stuck this into a time travel episode, or we could have stuck this into so many other places. When we when we discuss alternative world possibilities or, or journeying between them, right. I suppose. E- exactly, yeah. I mean, yeah. this is 1884, and I, I just feel like if he had something more profound or interesting at the heart of all this, this would easily be regarded as a classic or, you know, an undiscovered gem because sometimes really great works aren't necessarily remembered for whatever reason. But yeah, I mean, when you take into account of his personal life and why he was likely writing this, you can see why this one kind of fell by the wayside, even if it does fall in pretty early for these concepts in literature. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there were certain points early on where I had like, I mean, I was certainly intrigued by the first couple of chapters and I was, oh, where's he going to take it? And this is kind of clever and funny, right? And like, oh, I see he's trying to make all these sort of parallels to mythology and like, what's with all these little stories within stories that have like obscure morals that don't quite seem to come together, right? Like, (laughs) and even comment on that in the text, right? Yeah. He's like, I don't understand why this boy wrote this story like this, right? The wolf thing, like, yeah, I was just like, what? Like, uh, I mean, I know kids write weird stuff sometimes, but that one, I don't know. Very yeah. strange. Well, I know that I also, like, we have certain expectations of stories, right? And it goes back to this idea about formula and, like, when you're young or when you're, like, I guess a bit of an outsider in a certain sense, you're not aware of the formulas and some of the things that you do might be, like, awesome, creative, and cool, but some of them just might not make sense, right? You're just kind of, I don't know, you're you're... There's no, like, we have this dramatic sense of what a story should be, and sometimes that's not always fulfilled by everyone, right? Like, I don't know. It's really it's really hard to say, because Hinton is doing some commentary on that, almost, and he's like, in the end, he seems to be, I don't know, he seems to be, like, striving towards a certain wisdom about what this means, about what, like... It means to be seeing these alternative possibilities and multitude of possibilities and like, yeah, this is the better life that could have been, right? And he seems to be reaching towards some canny observations about that, but I'm not sure, you know, like, I, again, it's hard to escape that that kind of feeling that it's a bit petty and it's a bit like yep. unfortunate, I guess. I, I don't know. I wonder how somebody like Blackwood would have handled this. <laughs> I can't help it. Yeah, I get the sense from the Rudy Rucker writing on his works that Stella was a little more straightforward in its approach, but deals with similar themes of unhappy relationships and unrequited love and, yeah. and all that. And I mean, there's a lot you could say about a woman who chooses to go invisibly. Right? Yeah. Like, I guess, you know, in a commentary aspect, right? Yeah. <laughs> And I get the sense his Flatland sequel was just an excuse for him to, like, mathematical formula dump on the listener. Because I took a look out of his couple other mathematical texts, and yeah, I mean, they're mathematical texts with lots of equations and charts and all that kind of thing that you'd expect the tutor from the Blackwood story <laughs> read to... Uh, <laughs> I was about to say, I'm sure Thorley would like that. Yeah, right, exactly, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, this is certainly one of the oddest ones we've done. For a while, which is in terms of not really being able to, I guess, like not quite being able to connect with it in a way that I would say like, yeah, Blackwood is strange, but there's a certain like a certain clarity to it and a certain like 
real, not logic, but a, a kind of a, a, a symmetry to the way he writes about things. And whereas this was kind of like, I, I really, by the end, I think that I sort of got something from it. But it was just, yeah, I'm going along with this. And it is very scattered towards the end in terms of like, it's hard to keep track of the temporal location changes and stuff like that yeah. and where he's going with it. I definitely had to read yeah. like that that twice. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I wasn't expecting out of the, the four stories we read for this this recording for this to be the most opaque and the one to be the most like kind of hard to, Me neither. Yeah. to uh yeah. real like realize what it's supposed to be saying and what it's supposed to mean. But it's yeah, I <laughs> it's just very it's just very bizarre. Yeah, I had no idea what to expect from this because I really know nothing about Hinton before we did this story. I mean, the others, I kind of had an idea of what was surrounding them. This is my first time coming to all these works on tonight's episode, but we'd done Hodgson before and I really liked his stuff. Mm -hmm. And I'd read the Willows by Blackwood before and I really liked that. And German one, you know, that was in an anthology where we read other cool stuff and it was really short. But yeah, this one, I had no idea what to expect. And Mm -hmm. I certainly wasn't expecting what I got. And I think overall, this one is like a yellow flag cautious recommend it's certainly in the case of being more interesting than good but if you're knowing that going in you might find something in here to enjoy like i wouldn't say it's like totally not worth your time but it's definitely not a masterpiece and i don't think anybody would claim that it is yeah it's unfortunate because there is some there is kind of a seed of something really cool there yeah i think it would have been interesting to see if it had pursued more that idea of like how stories don't need to have a point and how we don't need like that idea of what you were saying about not following a certain formula that is in a sense a sort of unlearning and it would have been cool if maybe hinton had taken that that advice to heart in this one and maybe had done something different with the ending in a sense, almost a postmodernist approach rather than a modernist approach. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, in that sense, I guess so, because that was all about, like, demolishing the formula, right? Yeah. So, yeah. More meta-narrative. Uh, That's yeah. what this needs. Exactly. Yeah. It's, almost, it's almost sometimes, like, works like this, and, and, and almost part of what makes them cool is they almost don't seem aware of the formula. Like, it, it almost doesn't seem to be a thing for them, even. Whereas a whole aspect of postmodernism is like, yeah, we acknowledge that it exists, and we know it's there. <laughs> But we're going to do this consciously, right? Mm-hmm. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink type feelings to a lot of postmodernist stuff. Yeah, so overall, I don't know. Uh, we've, we've done better. We've done worse. And I, I think calling it interesting in the case of works that we didn't 100% enjoy is at least a compliment in some fashion or form. So take that as you will. Again, if you want the full version of it, you'll have to check out the version on archive.org and the Scientific Romances Volume 2 scan because the version that is in plain text on iBiblio abridges out entirely pretty much the meeting with Smith, the artist and the curate as yeah, well. Yeah, so let, let's talk about that for a second. Yeah, okay. So you say that whole, the whole like first half is, is not there? So the first chapter is there. The chapter where he is hanging out with the artist and the curate on the beach with Smith, he bridges out the stories that the artist and the curate tell. And then the third chapter where he initially meets Natalia 
and they're like hanging out together for a week or whatever it is, is abridged out almost entirely. Oh, and wow. And it just jumps into the last chapter where it's shifting through time and all that. Okay. So yeah. no miracle of the narrator giving her the complete classical education. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> none of his Cervantes <laughs> visions, none of that. Yeah. Well, that's... Okay. You need that because that's why he's able to let her go alone. She has that knowledge, so she's... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's got what she needs to survive. Remarkable. Yeah. And who would be able to improve on Cervantes other than a mathematician? <laughs> right. Yes. Well, that's interesting. So, what was the motivation behind abridging it? It wasn't Hinton himself who did this, right? No, it was the, I guess, person who migrated to the website. It wasn't abridged in print. Well, that's weird. That's like the time I came across uh, uh, somebody did an audio reading of Voyage to Arturus online, and they sort of cite that book yet again tonight. But <laughs> and they left out the entirety of the first five chapters and yeah. just have it start. With him arriving on the planet with a meeting Joywin, which is so weird because, like, those first chapters are awesome. Yeah, and yeah. they also establish that, like, later on, he goes through a, a bit of a temporal journey as well and kind of sees himself on Earth. So, like, that whole part would be meaningless if you remove. I don't know. It's, it's some people are weird sometimes. They just cut out what they think is unnecessary, right? I don't know. It's like. People people doing edited versions of TV shows and movies on the internet where they just, like, snip out bits and they're like, oh, it's just padding. It doesn't need to be there, right? It's like, <laughs> okay, well, you think that, but <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I get the sense that they were only interested in the science fiction adjacent parts. And a lot of times that is the okay. case with these early works where only a very small portion of the story is science fiction adjacent. And I guess if you're just interested in that content and like nothing else of the context of yeah. the surrounding part of the story, then I could kind of see why you would do that. But at the same time, like, it, I don't know, it just doesn't, even though the story wasn't like a masterpiece to begin with, it just really hacks it up to the point where I would imagine it would be even more incomprehensible than it presents itself in its full version. Yeah. It's so like in the big book of SF even couldn't avoid this when they just had that, those two or three kind of random sections of the, Jari. the yeah. opinions of Dr. Fostrel yeah. by, uh, uh, oh, I keep forgetting his name. Jari, Jari. Yeah. Alfred Jari. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like, okay, it's nice that you put it in there, but there's no context and everybody who reads it is just going to find it incomprehensible. Right. So, right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, it was a perplexing work to me, and it, unlike with House on the Borderland, I don't really have all these theories and conjectures about what, what it all means and what it's trying to get at. I guess I think we, we probably hit on it, and it's kind of a – ultimately, it, that's maybe a little more disappointing than the parts of the story individually are. Yeah. Yeah, it's all this <laughs> like – Oh, you know, this is what could have been, right? Like, my my, my first marriage was so terrible, right? <laughs> yeah. Should I cheat on my wife? I'll write a story to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would just reiterate, like, J.M., I thought this was pretty puzzling to read, but I think we've, we've covered everything. Yeah. Yeah, so what's happening next month, Nate? All right, so next month, we'll be taking a look at the human brain. In particular, we'll be covering four stories. Is it a novella, a short novel? It's somewhere on the borderland. Maybe not a house on the borderland. But it is A Heart of a Dog, written by Mikhail Bulgakov in 1925. The 
First time we've covered a Russian story in quite some time, so I'm very interested to read this one as I've, I've read some of Bulgakov's other work and it is just great stuff. We will also be covering Amado Nervo's The Soul Giver from 1899. And I have posted a translation of this that we've done on the blog spot. And while this has been translated into English before, the translation is like in a really difficult to find printing of it that was just like totally inaccessible to us and it's not that long so I went ahead and translated it and it's an interesting and very cool story so we're I'm, I'm definitely interested to check it out anyway another story on the blog spot that we'll be covering next time is the beast of bradhurst avenue written by george schuyler who was a prolific author of fiction in African-American newspapers in the 1930s, as well as a author of a couple longer works, such as Black No More and Black Empire. And this story has never been republished in any form. So we have transcribed it into plain text from the original newspaper printing, where it appeared in the Pittsburgh Courier, and posted it on our blog spot where it can be read. Yeah, and it sounds really spicy. Oh, yeah, it is. I'm looking very forward spicy, to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and finishing up the episode, we'll be returning to an old friend, Edward Page Mitchell, in his story Old Squids and Little Speller. So, got a lot covered for next time, and I think it's going to be a really good episode. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. I've read Heart of a Dog before, actually, and I don't know. It's it's I I'm really excited about the other stories as well. I think they're going to be great. So. Mm-hmm. By all means, if you're listening to this episode and you want to tune in next time, read those stories so you can hear us talk about them and enjoy our speculations and maunderings about what it all might be really about. In the meantime, remember that mirrors are dangerous and you should avert your eyes if you think another world might be at hand. Good night. This is Chrononauts, and we have been your guides in the spirit world. Thank you.